David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a reward for you listeners who put up with our Batman love affair. This is an episode heavy on analysis and insight and whether some of the biggest surprises of the year will keep it up. And our look ahead to the Chicagoland triple header and why speed may no longer be king. We will get to that. But first, this is episode 23. This is the Kenny Wallace edition of Positive Regression. David, Kenny Wallace drove various car numbers throughout the years, but late in his career, including his age 39 season, he was in the number 23 car for Bill Davis Racing. Specifically, I remember the Stacker 2 paint scheme. Uh, this was a time when, you know, sponsorship was plentiful in NASCAR and a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, the supplements started flowing into, uh, to NASCAR. The, the things you could buy at the local gas station. I think Stacker 2 may have been some sort of fat burner or, or something that enhanced something, but it was a memorable paint scheme on the side of the car and, and Kenny Wallace drove it. That's what I remember. Maybe the results weren't there, but, you know, Kenny Wallace, a memorable guy. That may have lended itself to the uh, energy drink. Yeah, era. a precursor. I mean, there was, yeah, like after, I mean, yeah, Red Bull and, and Monster eventually came in, but there were some really weird energy drinks. And then I, I don't I don't know, it's, is it is the CBD era next? That feels like the gotta next natural. Yeah. Yeah, that's got that's got to be it. But I'll tell you what, Kenny Wallace... He is your boy. He is your, uh, your Fox Sports, sure. uh, cohort. You, you've worked, you worked with him for a number of years, but, uh, a counter to the washed up driver stereotype. I always appreciated how open, how realistic he was about his career publicly. He always took pride in running second to Dale Earnhardt at, in Dale Earnhardt's final win at Talladega because it was sort of void of other interesting moments. So let's recognize him another way. I've got to ask you because you were close to him, but what will we forever remember about him? What would be his legacy? And whatever it is, is it a positive memory for you? Is it is it negative that he didn't perform? Because for me, I just think of Kenny Wallace, gregarious guy in the garage. Absolutely. And as we, most of us will because of his TV career. I mean, even before I had the fortune of working with Kenny and finding out, you know, how nice of a guy he is in person and how funny he is and all that stuff and how real he is. That's how we knew him, that gregarious personality on television. Uh, no, he did not have uh, the results in terms of wins and all that stuff that you would want out of a cup career, but he had a more than two decade career in the racing business. Uh, I think that's something he hangs his hat on. And when people talk about real racers, remember what he's doing right now. He's out there barnstorming in the Midwest all the time on his own, racing dirt, picking up a new discipline. That's what I think of when I think of Kenny Wallace. And David, being the age that we are, I mean, what do I remember? You know, we always talk about the 1993 season. Remember that rookie class, Jeff Gordon, Bobby Labonte, and Kenny Wallace. I mean, those three came in together, and we're still talking about all of them one way or the other all these years later, obviously for different reasons. But Kenny Wallace, my boy Kenny, kept has, has stayed relevant. Even if it wasn't the success he had on the track, we all know Kenny Wallace today still. Yeah, and he made that debut in the Cub Series because he pieced together, I don't know, a, a decent Bush Series career. I think it's a testament to his personality that there isn't this bitter view of him being a beneficiary of nepotism. I mean, Rusty Wallace has said that he was happy to put him in a race car. If not for Rusty, there may not have been a Kenny, but 
you know, Kenny may have had an unlikely career, but I look at him the same way I look at Brendan gone in that at least Kenny Wallace is enjoying himself the way that I would if I broke into the sport the same way. Um, I think about a Brendan gone, Brendan gone might be the richest guy in the garage and also might be the happiest guy in the garage. And by all accounts, just a friendly dude without any personal concerns. Like I, I look at that, like, yeah, I think I would probably act like that in that situation. Cause I'd be happy. I'm just, I'm here. And, and, and that is what I think of Kenny. That probably sounds weirder than I meant it, but I, I do mean it as a compliment. That's what I'll always remember about Kenny was, Always a smile on his face and uh, never minded having him around. Yeah, crazy journey too. Remember then that rookie year, race for Felix Sabatis, that was one year. And then the next year, he ends up in the 28 car. Remember Ernie Irvin gets injured and, and Kenny Wallace is in there filling in for a little bit. Uh, and he only drove four full seasons in all those years in Cup, four full seasons to, to really show what he had. So uh, kind of a crazy career. But a, you know, that, that term, an ambassador of the sport, no one got, no one was more famous, David, in the garage working television than I promise you, Kenny Wallace, getting the crowd going, getting stopped for autographs, uh, an ambassador of the sport till, still to this day, great Twitter follow. That's what I think of when I think of the Kenny Wallace edition of Positive Regression. So let's start this week's episode. David, we're going to talk about candidates for regression. We're about halfway through the season. You know, Fox throws it over to NBC. This is a great natural point to look at where things stand, uh, both just to see if things, what we believe are, are outliers, if performances we are seeing are just crazy, either good or bad. So we call this positive regression. We're going to look at some drivers and, and see if they are due for some normal regression or some positive regression. And let's just start with the man of the hour, Ross Chastain, because Ross Chastain is the biggest, it has to be one of the biggest stories of the, of the year, not only certainly in the truck series, but in all of NASCAR because of what he's doing, because of the little team that could aspect to it, because of him needing to win, making this late decision to run for the truck series championship, getting the win, getting it taken away and disqualified, and then going out there and winning the next race. David, what we're getting at is, this Nice Motorsports team did not exist like this. The performance was not there last year. And all now all of a sudden, they are winning races. Two wins, three wins, whatever you want to say, but a championship contender in the truck series. Is this the biggest surprise of the year, and should we have expected this at all? Can I play devil's advocate here? Sure. Ross Chastain ranks 11th in NASCAR Xfinity Series peer. Some might say that is good, but I will uh, submit this to you. He trails the likes of Michael Annette, Ryan Sieg, and five drivers age 23 or younger. And uh, none of the drivers ranked ahead of him have a worse surplus passing value. So if the Xfinity Series... And we'll get back to talking about trucks. But if the Xfinity series is the series earmarked as the final stop before the Cup series, has Ross Chastain done enough to warrant a bigger, more prominent ride in NASCAR's top division? I I would argue this is where the sport gets weird. I would argue, does it matter, David? I guess it matters who's looking, right? I mean, if, if you're looking at the analytics side of it, People will argue those numbers. If you're looking at who's a winner and who's getting it done with pure will and their, you know, heart out on the racetrack, 
that might do more and serve him better in the future for more cup rides or, or bigger rides, what he's doing in the lower series and getting wins than what his performance may be saying in the Xfinity series. How do you answer that? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'll let you on the hot seat. I, I, I just wanted to flip it around on you, but um, okay. So the, the bottom fell out of his passing numbers in the Xfinity series, but a broader sample, if you include last year, all of that suggests that he is a driver who isn't bad at any one thing, whether it's passing, restarting, uh, he's not a frequent crasher. He produces better than expected for his age. So he checks off a lot of boxes. There are a lot of pros from a stylistic standpoint. And we've talked on this podcast in the past that NASCAR has become, thanks to stages, increasingly stylistic. And he might be a rare guy that assimilates well to however a race breaks. And if you're a team on, you know, perpetually on the playoff bubble, you're probably in need of a guy that can just roll with the punches of any given race. I think we're seeing it most in the truck series. It would make some sense. It's the lower of the three divisions he competes in on a regular basis. But Alan, you were there in Iowa. Nice Motorsports had the fastest truck uh, at Iowa Speedway. Hmm, you know, strangely fast. And I will say that they have never produced the fastest truck in a race <laughs> prior prior to that and had one of the five fastest trucks in a race just twice in the team's existence before that day. It was noticeable in the timing and scoring data uh, how good that truck was. The disparity between it and the second fastest truck uh, was vast, like not even close, not normal, as Lance Armstrong would put it. Um, but look, I mean, it, even if you put a fast race truck underneath him, he still went out and did exactly, um, as, as was expected. Uh, so you can't, you can't knock him. And then the very next week, uh, I know some of that fell on a late strategy call. I was actually surprised that there weren't more crew chiefs trying to skew tires just in favor of a, a fuel only stop to get track position, but they did it. I mean, they're, they're living up to, uh, the melon man challenge as you so aptly oh. dubbed it. Uh, I would say that th this might not be the biggest surprise, but this revelation of how good Chastain is at so many different things that comprise a driver's repertoire is probably the biggest single data point we're talking about on this list of drivers. I think that there is a bigger ride on the horizon for him, certainly something beyond premium motorsports to the cup series level. Uh, I think this is just, this is just the beginning for him. Uh, I, I would, I would imagine that the majority of this continues. I don't know if it's going to be at the same sustainable pace, but um, I would say it's going to be a good year from here on out. Good to hear. Good to hear. And you know, with the way, uh, you know, rides open up and sponsorship and all that stuff, you never know where Ross Chastain may be by the end of the year or even next year in NASCAR. So we will see. Good luck to him on his uh, now ch official championship run. We'll see where it goes from there. Next up, Kevin Harvick. Kevin Harvick, fast car again, competing for wins, contending for wins, as we've come to expect out of the four team over at Stuart Haas Racing, but doesn't have any wins, nor does all of Stuart Haas Racing so far this season as we get into nearly July. So, David, will he win this year? If he does win, what does this season of just one or a few wins, I mean, what does it mean? 
are, are we, should we be expecting the Kevin Harvick of last year? Is this a new normal? We talk about regression a lot. He had a great year last year. Is it, are we seeing regression? Well, okay. Just looking at the Stuart Haas Racing 4 team, the, the team, the car, ranks second right now in central speed. And that is winnable speed. It'd take a comedy of errors for Kevin Harvick not to win at all in 2019. But the rules package, as it stands, neutralizes his cornering ability and that might be accelerating a natural decline in his age 43 season. At the very least, the rules package might have washed away a half of a season that isn't far removed from a very good Hall of Fame worthy competitive peak. Uh, and that might be a problem. You know, as vocal as he is about every little slight, uh, every real or imagined rival, I'm shocked he hasn't spoken out about this rules package. I guess that speaks to kind of the, the team mistakes that have been going on at Stuart Haas. You know, Alan, we, we talked about him on the curse of the standard and that was after just a small sample size of races. Has their lack of wins, has that changed what you think about this team? Because back then when we did that episode a couple of months ago, you said it wasn't panic time and maybe it still yeah. isn't panic time, but are you closer to hitting the panic button? Well, David, I've been indoctrinated. What's the word? Indoctrinated? Um, you leave this in because I don't mind sounding foolish, but I've been brainwashed by you, David. I've been brainwashed by the motorsports analytics theory of thinking in the age 39 season. Kevin Harvick is beyond that curve right now, and I'm starting to believe the longer it goes on that that maybe age is somewhat playing a factor. I mean, I, I David, I read your work, and I, I start to believe it, that even with speed, maybe the driver factors in even the slightest bit, even though we know Kevin Harvick's talent, we know of his championship pedigree, his race-winning ability, but maybe there, there's a little bit off there. Maybe the rules package is taking away some of the advantage or that his skills used to deliver. Uh, it would certainly surprise me if Kevin Harvick and the four team didn't come up with a win at some point because of how fast their cars are. Uh, I can't wrap my head around it still. I'm far more panicked than the first time I said I was not panicked. Yeah, and you said a little bit off. I mean, just even looking at his passing numbers, in 2018, among front runners, he ranked second in surplus passing value. Under the same parameters so far this year, he ranks as the fourth worst in the series. That is a dramatic shift. And that, that number actually is probably where you will see positive regression. I don't think he's that bad of a passer, uh, or at least not that, uh, not efficient of a passer. I'd have to imagine that that's a chasm that closes over the course of the second half of the season, especially as they approach the playoffs. It was two years ago. Um, in 2017, Stuart Haas switched from Chevrolet to Ford and they got off to a sluggish start. It was the Sonoma race that Kevin Harvick broke the winless drought. But come playoff time, that four car was the fastest car in the playoffs. So this team has shown a, an ability to turn around what's been ailing it over the course of a season and in season adjustments are really hard. You don't see them very often. Usually what you have in the first few weeks of the season is probably going to be what you have at the end of the season, but they've shown a propensity to make those changes. 
I think we'll see if they can do that later on this year with a driver who is two years older. Interesting. As we uh, look at the former champ, Kevin Harvick, let's see, we've covered Truck Cup. Let's go over to the Xfinity Series and talk some Tyler Reddick, another one of the big surprises of NASCAR this year, because in terms of production, I know he was the champion last year, David, but as I often reiterate, I mean, you, we didn't go into that playoff uh, assuming that, that Tyler Reddick was a favorite for the championship. So in terms of production last year, or even last two years as a driver, what he's doing now, coming out hot out of the gate, winning, you know, having all these top fives and all these wins, to me, this screams just surprise. I did not expect this. Uh, the, the, the Xfinity car, the two car last year did not have this speed. Uh, I think I looked it up. He was 20th in the series in peer last year, David. And all of a sudden he's got a peer of 5.0, which if you're still playing catch up here with, uh, motorsports analytics, a 5.0 peer is insanely good and he's tops the series. How do you make that jump in one, one season, David? That, that, that screams surprise to me. So this is the biggest surprise for me among the drivers that we're talking about today. But if you look back at his Xfinity and Truck Series career prior to 2019, it was highlighted by moments, uh, a smattering of wins, but nothing, nothing sustainable, uh, no complete seasons. Uh, so you mentioned 2018, he ranked 20th in peer. Uh, it was with a 0.864 rating. The year prior, uh, in the Xfinity series, he ranked 45th, uh, and his peer was a 0.028. So yeah, this year is a big change. I don't buy what we're seeing from him this year, if only because he's taught us that we shouldn't. So consider this. In 2017, he finished inside the top 15 23% less often than his percentage of laps completed inside the top 15. That's a dramatic underachievement. Uh, in fact, that number is why I made him a candidate for positive regression on NASCAR.com prior to the 2018 season. But his underachieving continued in 2018 despite the championship. Um, last year, that top 15 disparity was 10%, uh, wasn't as bad, but that is still on the high end. Uh, this year, he's finished in the top 15 in every single race, which is 9% more often than his percentage of completed laps in the top 15. He's now overachieving by a large margin. We've never actually seen what balance looks like from him, and I don't know why that is. I know balance appears in different ways um, and takes different amounts of time, but we've never seen one whole season in which his output matches his input. So that's why part of me thinks that, yeah, he's a candidate to regress over the, the course of the second half of the season, but I hesitate because He's never actually done that. He's, he's kind of, he's kind of just stayed. He's either a, a chronic underachiever and I don't know if that's going to be the same with his, with his overachieving. I suppose that remains to be seen, but it's a head scratcher when you go back and just kind of look at his history and realize we, we don't really know what the real Tyler Reddick looks like. Well, I like it. He makes it exciting. So I look forward to seeing how the rest of the season plays out for him because what he's doing with it, at least while he has it, is pretty fun to watch. Let's go to his old teammate, Justin Allgaier. 
David, which is the outlier here when it comes to young Mr. Allgaier? Because last year he had five wins, certainly a contender for the championship. This year so far, no wins. So which one should we believe more, if you will? Um, Was last year just a crazy, again, outlier? And this year we are regressing to the mean a little more and we should expect zero or, you know, one win or, or is he vastly underachieving? And last year was the norm. H- how do you judge Justin Allgaier? Well, first of all, you called him young and he's 33 years <laughs> I old. I know. Younger uh, than that's me. About, that's about our age bracket. So let's go ahead and take that one. Um, uh, Justin Allgaier, since, since he returned to the Xfinity series in 2016, his production has been inconsistent in that 2016 was really good. 2017 was not so good. And 2018 was really, really good. And this year, he's not bad. Uh, his 1.893 peer is in line with his 2016 season, which I guess is fine, but it isn't what we saw last year. And it's not what was projected uh, through my regression analysis, which was the best peer this year in the Xfinity series. Ooh. I think it's safe to say he's not going to hit that. Perhaps, Alan, this is an example of placing far too much importance on one season. He might be a victim of recency bias, uh, but he's still a top 10 guy in production. Still good. Uh, two weeks ago at Iowa, he was a monster on restarts from the non-preferred groove Seven positions earned on five attempts with 100% retention. The average driver does not do that. Justin Allgaier has game. He, he has plenty of skill, but a bunch of moments like that fell into place in 2018 well enough to impact his output. And that hasn't been the case this year, at least not right now. Uh, he's got a whole second half of the season where at least some of those moments can all come together and equal out a good race or run of races. And that could change or salvage the perception of his 2019 season. Well, I'm interested to see what he can do. Obviously, he's got uh, the team and, and the pedigree and what we believe the ability. So I want to see what he can do. He had kind of I mean, a lot of those wins came late in the season last year. So we'll see what he can do this year. Uh, another championship run for Justin Allgaier. Keeping in the Xfinity series, uh, Ryan Sieg, the ups and downs of Ryan Sieg and a, uh, and a lower funded team, if you will. David, I remember a few years ago, uh, playoff driver, you know, surprise playoff driver, but earned his way in. Then a few year down years. And now he has bought RCR equipment, hired an RCR crew chief and Shane Wilson. Uh, but the driver, as you've pointed out all season, if you've been paying attention to what David has been writing, uh, Ryan Sieg has improved as a driver. Uh, is this a surprise? Are we seeing uh, an improvement in terms of what we should expect of him week to week? Yeah, I wrote about him uh, recently for Motorsports Analytics with the angle that his improvement is more than just him buying new equipment. Uh, his place in the central speed rankings improved by 11 positions or so, at least last I checked. Uh, but seven of those spots were occupied by teams that no longer exist oh. in the Xfinity series. So in reality, uh, the 39 car is faster, but faster than about four more teams than they were last year. So purchasing the new equipment and the hiring of Shane Wilson 
doesn't necessarily account for all of Ryan Sieg's improvement. Consider what he's doing as a passer. He's gone from a, a a below par passer to an above par passer. Last year, he spent the majority of his time driving near Jeremy Clements, Alex LeBay, and Joey Gase, according to timing and scoring data. And Sieg tallied a negative surplus passing value. Uh, but this year, he's spending the majority of his time driving near Brandon Jones in a Joe Gibbs racing car, uh, Ross Chastain, who we've already talked about, and Justin Haley, who we are about to talk <laughs> about, and his surplus value is a positive. If you're asking me to make this call, he's a significantly better driver this year than he was last year. It's not all car. Now, how does that happen? Drivers develop differently, and I don't think it's unheard of that a driver in his early 30s figures some things out or finds uh, a new dedication to the sport. Maybe new equipment can do that, but it, this isn't um, this isn't so far fetched to the point where it is unbelievable. And I actually don't expect regression going forward. I think this maintains because his top 15 disparity shows him finishing 3% less often than his laps completed in the top 15. That feels like a nice balance. And if anything, it signals the potential for a small uptick. Nice. And we're all, we're all just trying to make it to that age 39 season, David. So uh, (laughs) that's all we're trying to do in life. It's going to be so disappointing if our, if, if you and I's age 39 years are just disastrous. I hope not. That will, I'm really looking forward to uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. Uh, next driver up, still a, a far ways away from his age 39 season, but Justin Haley, Justin Haley, a rookie in the Xfinity series, 100% relevance in terms of how David Smith and motorsports analytics defines relevance. And that is finishing in the top half of a field. David, I hope you're proud of me. I dropped that stat on the broadcast in the Iowa Xfinity race, and I, you know, tried to explain a little bit, but just to give Justin Haley the credit that's due for a rookie, uh, doing what he needs to do, obviously not the fastest car or in one of the top cars speed-wise, but delivering the finishes he has to do for a rookie. Uh, you know, he had three wins in the truck series last year, but he, certainly I don't think he made a lot of the headlines. He was one of the final four, but should we have uh, paid a little more attention to what he did last year and his potential for this Xfinity ride? I spent some time looking over his year last year. I completely forgot that he was in the championship for, for yeah. the truck series. I, look, I, I told you I don't pay attention to points, but that probably should have registered in my memory. But that's, he was just quietly good, uh, last year and his truck series peer was great for a 19 year old driver. It was uh, a 2.543 rating, far better than average for age 19. Haley is the same age as Noah Gragson and scored a better peer than Gragson, but Gragson dominated the majority of discussions about young truck drivers last year. And, and I don't want to just knock Gragson, but between the other KBM drivers and Brett Moffitt's rise to prominence, there were storylines that buried what Haley was able to do last year in the truck series. Uh, and right now he has a peer over two as a 20 year old in the Xfinity series. And that is quite something. Um, his passing or lack thereof was a big negative last year in trucks. And that was kind of my bugaboo for why I ranked him outside the top 10 on my prospect rankings earlier in the year. But it's reached a point of balance this year in the Xfinity series 
uh, go figure. He's a better passer in Xfinity than he was in trucks. And I think I've, I've figured out the reason is he, He's now passing drivers closer to his age and experience level. Last year, he spent the majority of his time driving near Johnny Sauter, Grant Enfinger, and John Hunter Nemechek. And all three of those guys are not only very good passers, but very aggressive and very difficult to get around. Um, he's probably finding the Xfinity series more amenable, even though there's supposed to be this perception that Xfinity is more difficult. But needless to say, this is, this, he is more of a stud in the making than we feel. Justin Haley is a very good young driver. Probably just isn't getting a lot of the, uh, the attention that some other young drivers are, but maybe that should change. Interesting stuff. And we will see him on the track in Chicago because it is a triple header as we go out to Chicagoland, the lovely city of Joliet. And when we are looking toward uh, the cup race for this weekend, David, you had a great article on the athletic talking about, because we are going back to these uh, one and a half mile tracks, the cookie cutters, if you will. We saw the Chicago land race last year and with all the, the fireworks and last lap passing. But David, you took a deep dive into what we're seeing on these mile and a half tracks this year, like, like the Kansases of the world, if you will, uh, tracks like Chicago. And to sum it up, I mean, I'll let you explain a little bit, but your findings are, are showing the fastest. We know the fastest car doesn't always win the race, but is it safe to say that maybe having the fastest car in the race does not matter as much this season? Is that what we're seeing? Not so much on the moderate mile and a half. Uh, so if we, Think all the way back to the 2017 season. Martin Truex and Furniture Row Racing put on a clinic. They went undefeated on this track type in 2017, six for six, and they had the fastest car in four of the six races. Dating back to last year's playoff opener in Las Vegas, the five races since that were on moderate mile and a halfs, were won by cars that were not the fastest in the race. So this could be a, a regression to the mean. On average, the fastest car wins a NASCAR race 40% of the time during that initial stretch from 2017 to the middle of 2018. We saw the number hit 70% on the moderate mile and a half. And since then, it's reduced to 0%. So it's a it's a pretty steep drop. So it could be regression. It also could be, I don't know, normal for this rules package. Um, I think some of the volatility on restarts we saw at Kansas, um, probably probably something we might expect. We might could we should delve into that later, but I think it's safe to say the fastest car won't be shut out of these tracks moving forward. Like this isn't a curse, right? But it's it's plausible that this is the new normal only because the rules package was designed this way. It, it was designed to not reward the fastest car to the extent that it did in years past. Uh, 13 of the last 15 races on moderate mile and a half saw the fastest car be Martin Truex or Kevin Harvick. Uh, Kevin Harvick has had the fastest car in the only two moderate mile and a half this year. He didn't win. We might have a different fast car. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm just intrigued by sort of the possibilities of this, but less importance. Maybe, maybe now the focus is on late run speed. Maybe it's on short run speed. If that is to be believed. 
And I think we maybe saw that with Kansas, um, you know, a track similar to Chicago. And also with those Kansas restarts, can we expect something similar in Chicago? As you, you call it the volatility of these restarts. But look, we know every week they're important. We know what stage racing has done to up the importance of, uh, of restarts and your restart ability and the lane choice and the importance of that. Will this resemble what we saw in Kansas on restarts? Even though, you know, that was a night race, obviously this is a day race, but will, will this race in Chicago resemble Kansas for the restarts? I would suspect so, uh, because these tracks are similar in design, but also in restart disparity. Uh, their grooves last year, all of them, uh, the two races at Kansas and the one race at Chicagoland saw disparity less than 15% between them. And that is relatively even compared to what you and I are used to discussing on this podcast. At Kansas in the spring, the disparity stayed the same, but the positions gained and lost were less rosy. I would expect that an identical frantic nature at Chicagoland occurs, uh, the kind that might not reward those attempting to gamble with their pit stops, fuel only or, or only two tires. Um, that hasn't yielded much this year with this rules package. That still should be the case. And that's why I like the truck series. Like a little more gambling, shorter races, I think provide for a, a little more gambling and strategy depending on the track. But, uh, we're, we're talking Chicago. We're talking the cup series. I know. What do you want to see this weekend? If you, if you, we always try to predict something, maybe not predict, but something we would like to see play out on the racetrack. What would you like to see in this weekend's Chicago race? I'll be watching Eric Jones. Uh, his name was back in the rumor mill. Last weekend, and I'd like to point out that across the last five races in the Cup Series, his car ranks fourth in central speed. In the last race on this track type at Kansas, he finished third after drawing the ire of Clint Boyer because, I'm checking my notes here, uh, yes, he didn't pull over and give Boyer a position on the last lap. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Um, I'm curious to see what Jones will do this weekend because this speed of late, all of this feels as if it's an effort driving toward a crescendo and a win could silence some of his doubters that feel he might need to be replaced at Joe Gibbs Racing. Um we don't know that the rumors are true. We do know there's a lot of heat surrounding Jones right now, and I think a win can remove some of that. I want to see more of what we saw in Kansas. In terms of kind of what you're talking about, in terms of the fastest car not necessarily being the one that's there at the end. And what I mean by that is, remember who won Kansas, David? Brad Keselowski. Brad the, Yeah, yeah go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. Sixth fastest car in terms of central speed and the ninth best average running position. So within the context of the race, I know Brad Keselowski winning the race isn't a shock, but within the context of that event, he kind of came out of nowhere. Exactly. And that's what I want to see in Chicago land. I love the unpredictability. I don't know where I didn't rewatch the race. I apologize. Maybe I should have to prepare, but I don't know where Brad Keselowski came from, but I like the fact that he wasn't the dominant one. He kind of came out of nowhere as the numbers show. And you're at the end, uh, there was a great battle between him just kind of going down and mowing down Alex Bowman, kind of, you know, showing him kind of who's boss, who's the veteran, who's the young driver. I thought that was a great finish at Kansas. Again, kind 
kind of out of nowhere in terms of where he was running throughout the race. I would love to see a little bit of that unpredictability on Sunday in Chicagoland. We'll see what happens. Don't forget, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you are hearing, and I know you do, especially after that Batman episode, we had a lot of good feedback there. But please make sure you leave a rating or a review. That does help this podcast gain visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have questions, listen up. We want to answer them on this podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPog, P-O-S. R-E-G-P-O-D. This is more important this week because we are going to spend time answering your questions on this pod next week. We always get great, smart listener questions. Send in some more this week because we're going to focus on you guys next on next week's episode. David, what are you working on? Uh, I want to add to that that if we don't receive good enough questions that we can use over uh, the next few weeks, so help me, I will preview the Tour de France. Uh, that is my favorite sporting event, and I have opinions. Alan is petrified right now hearing uh. this. But while you're coming up with those questions, please head over to The Athletic where I am profiling Brad Keselowski this weekend. We've talked about his malleability in the past. Uh, I believe I've found a way to quantify it pretty well, so you will want to check that out. Looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to getting to Chicagoland on Friday, yet another exciting truck race on FS1. Don't forget, just because uh, the Cup and Xfinity stuff is crossed over, all your truck races are on FS1. So I will be down there on Pit Road on Friday night. And then I'm staying the whole weekend because of the switchover. Uh, race day is still on FS1 on Sunday. Not so much a pre-race show. It's more of a, you know, 30,000 foot view of where the rest of the season's going to go. We will be there throughout the race weekends on the cup side for the second half. So don't forget about race day on FS1 on Sunday and just watch all your NASCAR all weekend. It's going to be, it's going to be fun, David. So, uh, it's been another fun episode, episode 23 of Positive Regression. Appreciate you guys listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Stay positive, everybody. Thank you for listening. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.